We live in an either-or world. Or at least in a world where many people prefer things to be either-or. And if we're really honest, most of us are comfortable in such a world. Most of the time. There's something stabilizing about a world that we can divide neatly into two parts. Good or evil. Moral or sinful. Right or wrong. It's stabilizing because we always know where we are. On the side of all that is right and good. And that there's something fundamentally different between us and those on the wrong side. That way of cutting up the world often works so long as we stay in the abstract and on the surface. Trouble is, as soon as we dig deeper, we hit gray dirt. Not pay dirt, gray dirt. We hit mud, messiness. We find a whole world, a real world, underneath the surface, living in the in-between, making do somewhere between good and evil. In fact, the real world usually resists anything that's either or. The real world operates on a continuum, a line stretching from here to here. And that's true almost whatever the topic. Race, religion, politics, gender, sexual orientation, social class, culture, ethics, you name it. A continuum is an inconvenient truth for those of us who like to sort things. You know, arrange them in the proper box. Always know where they fit, which side of the red line they are on. It's upsetting for sorters to live with the kind of ambiguity that happens when our neat and tidy world gets impinged on by the real world. Now maybe you find yourself somewhere in this reality that I'm describing. So maybe you will also find yourself in today's parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13. Jesus was preaching to his own people, a society of sorters, a people who tended to see the world in two groups, children of Abraham, not children of Abraham. And they were led by powerful religious bodies like scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, the sorters in chief. I believe Jesus saw through our blindness in dividing up the world in this way. So he advocated for a different way of discerning what is good, what is of God. The way he got across to people with truth that was hard to hear was largely through stories and images of the kingdom. If he had offered his people just a different set of rules to replace the old rules, he could have easily been ignored and brushed aside. Instead, 
he led with stories, tales that touched deeply their own experiences, stories that first got them to say, yes, I recognize that. I know where he's going with that. And then the story takes an unexpected turn, a shocking plot twist that often caught the listener flat-footed, unable to muster a response or a comeback. This made Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God harder to ignore and brush aside. You could get mad about it, but you couldn't ignore it. Now, this parable of the wheat and the weeds has been read a lot of different ways. It has sometimes been co-opted by people with an agenda, whether conservative or liberal. I've heard it used to reinforce a message of judgment, since the master ends up burning all the weeds in a bonfire. I've heard it be used to imply that we have very little to say or do in distinguishing good from evil, since the wheat and weeds grow up together and God sorts it all out in the end. My preferred approach is a simple one. Read it as naturally and straightforward as I can and be open to how the story wants to move me in whatever moment and situation I'm in. So let's talk about the story itself for a bit. There are at least four separate characters or character groups referred to in the story. There's the householder, the owner farmer who plants the wheat. There are his servants, the slaves who work the farm. There is an unnamed enemy who comes at night with the intent to foil the success of the farmer. And there are contract reapers, temporary help, hired to bring in the harvest when it's time. Now, keep all those in mind. And let's think now about the agricultural elements of the story, the wheat and the weeds. So what kind of wheat is, weed is this? The Greek word used is zizania which in botany today, if any of you are botanists, is the name of a whole genus of wild rice. But scholarly consensus is that Matthew is talking about one of the most common and troublesome of weeds for wheat farmers in that day, Darnell. And it was everywhere, hard to avoid. Interesting that Matthew says an enemy planted it, but surely some would have ended up in the field anyway. The problem with Darnell is that it's not only so widespread, it closely resembles wheat, at least in the early stages of growth. The regular farm workers noticed it, of course, because they were being observant. But if they had taken it upon themselves to try to rid the field of Darnell as it was growing, it would have been unavoidable to pull up some of the good, tender wheat as well. Wheat that had not had a chance to mature and develop a root, root system and develop 
uh, heads of valuable wheat grain. However, if they let the darnel grow along with the wheat, the solution would be far more practical and profitable. The contract reapers, unlike regular farm laborers, were experts in telling darnel from wheat, especially at harvest time. The ears of darnel stand straight up. The ears of wheat are heavy and they droop. So the reapers, without tremendous effort, can go through a field and first remove the darnel, sticking up above the wheat, pulling it out, will damage very little wheat, which by now is firmly rooted. Then the darnel can be thrown in a burn pile and the wheat harvested clean for further processing. It's all pretty common sense, you know? Matthew's readers would no doubt have understood very well the farming principle here. There isn't much mystery. And thanks to Nazareth Village for making those images available for our use. After that parable, <clears throat> there's two more, uh, almost one-liner parables that I won't spend time with now. The kingdom of heaven is like a tiny mustard seed that grows into something substantial, and the kingdom is like, a, like yeast. A little bit leavens the whole loaf. Both of those speak to the surprising power of something that seems so small. Well, after Jesus pulled himself away from the crowds and went into a private home, his disciples came to him asking for an explanation of the wheat and weeds story. <clears throat> now, the fact that Jesus has this sidebar with his disciples tells us Matthew thought this particular parable, even more than the others, was essential for his readers to fully understand. By putting that part of the story there, Matthew tells us this one is a gem. Listen carefully to it. So Jesus explains the allegory, exactly which elements in the story correspond to which elements in daily life. And here's what Jesus said. The farmer, that's me. The good seed, children of the kingdom. The weed seed, children of the evil one. The one who sowed the weeds, the devil. The reapers who come later to sort things out, the angels. And you might notice that the regular field hands weren't mentioned, and weren't identified. Maybe that was because it would have been obvious if the householder farmer is Jesus, then they, the ones asking the questions, the disciples, are indeed the hired hands, or the helping hands. Now, of course, we wonder what to make of this story for our time using these parallels that Jesus spelled out. But first we must ask, as we always must ask, what did Matthew's first readers make of this story? What did they hear? What lessons would they have drawn from it? And then we can translate it for our time. Not to keep repeating myself, for details, listen to last Sunday's sermon or my intro to Matthew back in January. But briefly, the likely context for Matthew's gospel is a church in conflict in Antioch of Syria around 70 AD. 
Now a little sidebar of my own. Modern day Antioch is the town of Antakya, now in Turkey. And it sits near the epicenter of the recent earthquake. That town of 200,000 residents has been entirely wiped out, according to reports. It virtually doesn't exist now. And people are living in the streets and in tent cities. So as we ponder ancient Antioch, we should offer up our prayers for the city of today. Well, at the time of Matthew's writing in Antioch, there is conflict within the church among the Jewish and Gentile Christians. There's conflict between the church and the local Jewish synagogue and conflict between all Jews and the brutal Roman Empire. Uh, this is a church context that's ripe for members to judge and condemn others. And apparently a lot of that was going on in Antioch, as we noticed last Sunday in the Sermon on the Mount that was addressed. And we can hardly blame the Christians in Antioch for their tendency to pass judgment on others or to consign their adversaries to God's burn pile. The opposition was brutal. Our conflicts today are quite tame in comparison, I believe. I think that the teaching of Jesus here speaks directly to their situation. Let the weeds grow up with the wheat. The lesson is not turn a blind eye to the weeds. It is not act as if there's nothing to be discerned. Rather, echoing the, his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which we saw last week, the word to the disciples of Jesus in Antioch and to us disciples today is be calm, be patient, be trusting of God's judgment and justice. As fallible learners of the way of Jesus ourselves, if we take it upon ourselves to start acting like the reapers and start ripping out weeds prematurely, we may end up destroying wheat in the process. And I imagine that was already happening in Antioch, just as it frequently happens in the church today. What's the public's number one impression of Christians today, according to poll after poll? Our judgmentalism toward others. Our intolerance. Our willingness to condemn in others the things we ourselves are guilty of. Now, any idea what that is doing to young and tender seedlings? How much fruitfulness for the kingdom of God is being cut short prematurely when we, the non-experts, inexperienced in the task of reaping, get too much in a hurry 
get too agitated over the weeds in our midst and start ripping them out too soon. I think one of the significant learnings for us in this parable is the very fact that the landowner's servants were never expected to work the harvest. Where did we get the notion that we, the regular farm workers, the assistants to the householder, that we are God's sorters and reapers? That's the work of angels, according to Jesus. And angels we are not. Our sole task as laborers in God's field is to lovingly tend the land as God would. Do no more than God asks of us and let the harvest up to the experts, the angels of God who will come when it's time and not any earlier. Well, that should help us all relax a bit, don't you think? I don't mean be lazy. I said relax. We stay attentive and observant. We notice when weeds are cropping up and taking root. We act with wisdom and discernment. We seek to promote the health of the good wheat in every way possible. But we don't panic about the weeds. We don't start swinging the scythe with the intent to cut them down or yank them violently from the ground. We trust God and we trust the angels of God to sort it out in due time. Now personally, as someone who likes to sort things, I feel like it's time for a confession. Please join me if you feel the same. God of the wheat fields and thistles, we confess our lack of full trust in you and your driving passion for justice and your commitment to put the world right. We sometimes mistake your patience for apathy, your grace for disinterest, your wisdom for weakness. Give us courage to join you in the struggle, calmness to wait for your timing, and forbearance to live with the questions that remain. The God of all that is good forgives us and invites us to join in bringing in the coming harvest abundant and life-giving. Amen.